grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. We are covering the last part of the Gospel of Mark, as Josh said, it's the end of a 16-week walk through the Gospel of Mark. I, I pray it's been great blessing, encouraging, strengthening, teaching, correcting, counseling time for you. It has been for me. And today we're covering both the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which is a little odd for us because typically we cover the death of Jesus on Good Friday and we cover the resurrection of Jesus on Easter, which is a good way to do it because it, it separates, it's like in the real time frame. But this is how it was written. When it was first written, it was meant to be read as, as one book, like you'd sit down and, and read a book. And sometimes in the church, we, we analyze things and we break it down in little tiny sections, which is good too, but it was meant to be read together. And so we'll do that today. We'll walk through the text together. It's one of the most important texts in all of Scripture. And so we want to highlight some big stuff from it. I won't cover it all. Um, it would take two hours, and you would walk out on me, and, and that would be bad. I would be sad. So we're just going to do 20 minutes, the most important text in the Bible, one of the most important. I'm going to miss stuff. You're raising your hand. You're like, what are you talk about? I know. I, I blew it. Just, just forgive me. Um, but here we go. Mark chapter 15. At noon, the darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lam sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The text talks about darkness over the whole land. And this is more than just, it was overcast and cloudy. Uh, the text hints that darkness is the judgment of God taking place. It's not pitch black darkness, they can still see, but it's clear that this is something that is supernatural that's taking place. And it's also clear that it's God's divine judgment taking place by Jesus' next words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You've been there before? God, where are you? Maybe you even added the phrase, and I say this with all its fullest intent, God, where in the hell are you? But for Jesus, this was quite literal. And the darkness that is coming over the land is not judgment on the people, but rather judgment on the man, Jesus Christ. And on the cross, he's not only suffering uh, the, just the torture of crucifixion, but he's also suffering the judgment of God in hell itself on the cross. For your sin and for my sin. And in that sense, it's completely fair to say, and honest to say, I killed Jesus. He's on that cross for me. And in that, that torment and that forsakenness and uh, receiving the judgment for all the sin of the world, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, where are you? 
It's a quote, actually. It's a quote from Psalm 22. And in those days, they didn't have the headlines for the psalm, Psalm 22. You, you knew the psalm by the first line of the psalm, right? Just like we do today. You know, my boyfriend's back. You're going to be in trouble. Hey, yeah, you know the song, right? Right? So you say the first line of the song, you know the rest of the song. And theologians argue whether Jesus' cry here is a cry of lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or is he referring to Psalm 22, which ends on a victorious note? And I think the answer is yes. I'd like to share with you portions of Psalm 22. It starts out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you don't answer. By night, I find no rest. And here, the psalmist, written about 1,000 years before Jesus and the cross, predicts what's going to take place. It says this in Psalm 22. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. That happened. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, his shoulders would have been dislocated. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me the dust of death. As Jesus was on the cross, he would have experienced massive dehydration. The psalm continues. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. And all that took place. The psalmist prophesied all of it. And Jesus points to it while on the cross. But the psalm continues. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he is not despised or scorned at the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. And all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people. They will proclaim his righteousness, declare to a people yet unborn. He has done it. Or you could say, he has completed it. Or you might even say, it is finished. It's all there in Psalm 22. But he hasn't finished it quite yet. Verse 35, it says this. When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge filled with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. 
Let's see if Elijah comes and take him down, he said. It was commonly thought that Elijah would come to help the innocent and the righteous. And so Jesus here is mocked at the very bitter end. And then finally, at the end. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. The centurion displays the most basic and rudimentary of faith. He's not saying this is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's, he's not there yet. He's not saying this is God in the flesh uh, and uh, he's taking my sin for me on that cross. He's not there yet. But where he is at is this. He knows the important, most important person alive is Caesar. And Caesar was often called a son of God. The centurion says, no. This man here, whose death I've just overseen and executed, this is the son of God. Some women were watching at a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. And many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. We mentioned at the very beginning that when we, um, when we read Mark, we're here reading Mark's words, but we're hearing Peter's voice. And here Peter honors the women uh, who have taken care and watched over Jesus. And here he gives it special honor. They're the ones who have not abandoned Jesus. Did you see whose name is missing from this list? It's Peter. Peter's not in the list. Peter left. Peter, just the night before, had sworn he would never abandon, he would never forsake, he would never leave his Lord. And Jesus is like, you know, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to do it three times. To his own shame, he's not in this list. The text continues. I think it got cut off from the projector there. I'll continue here. It's in Mark chapter 15, verse 42. You'd like to check it out in your Bible here. It's on page 1010. If you'd like to look at it there. Verse 42. It was preparation day. That is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock. 
and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Joseph of Arimathea, he, he boldly asks for the body. And it was common for crucified criminals to be denied burial. They were just thrown in with the rest of the trash. The fact that Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the ruling council, the same council that just sentenced Jesus to death, asks for the body is huge. He's putting his, his occupation on the line. He's putting his, his future income on the line. Because it's easy for him to be ostracized and denied work by the rest of the community for what he's done. But he'll give Jesus a burial. They move the body. Clean it up. Wrap it up. And hastily throw it in the tomb. It's Friday afternoon when sundown hits, Sabbath officially begins, and they're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. And so you had to get it done quickly. Sabbath ran from Friday sundown to, to Saturday sundown. A little dark Saturday night to prepare the body up the right way for burial. So it's going to have to wait till Sunday morning. Chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. And very early, on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? The women, they have no expectation of a resurrection. Their devotion to Jesus is plain. They're going to prepare a body for burial, a body that's been dead for a couple days already. This is not a fun thing to do. And as they're walking on their way, they realize there's a big stone in the way. And what would happen is the stone was on, a, on an incline. And so one person could roll into place fairly easily, but you would need a couple people to get that thing back up again. And they're wondering about how they're going to pull this off. And when they get there, they realize it doesn't matter. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go. Tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Peter the coward. Peter the failure. Peter the one who ran. Make sure, make sure Peter knows. very end. Jesus makes sure that the one who needs him most at that time knows it's all good. It's all forgiven. He is restored. He is loved. He is Jesus once again. Once again.
do they do that? Well, not immediately. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The end. That's how the Gospel of Mark ends. And you're like, huh, that's a funny ending. And you're right. It's so funny that later on, a couple of decades later, people are like, you know, let's, let's just you know, fix the ending here. And so they took a little bit from Matthew, and they took a little bit from Luke, a little bit of John, they tagged it on to the end, they went, okay, this is the better ending. But the original text ends this way. Weird, huh? But it fits completely. It fits the whole theme of the Gospel of Mark. Because in the Gospel of Mark, whenever people encounter Jesus, and as he fully reveals himself to be truly man and truly God in the flesh, the first response is, ah, ah. That's the first response. Absolute fear. Absolute fear. It happens every single time. And here they are in the presence of an angel. And typically when that happens, you die, right? Right? And they're like, oh, we're afraid for ourselves. We're afraid for what happened. We don't understand. And it all bookends the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. The very first verse of the Gospel of Mark says this. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And here at the very end, we have Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, risen. Now, clearly, they didn't, like, not tell anyone because they told Peter and the disciples. But their first response was that. They trembled. So the gospel writer invites us to place ourselves in the story. How will it end? We have everything we need to know. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. How does it continue? And where do you place yourself in that story? Are you the women of following from a distance? Are you Pilate condemning and then changing your mind? Are you the centurion executing and then declaring his praise? Are you Peter? Denying and being restored. See, the whole point of the Gospel of Mark is this that you might know that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, who gave his life for you. And that you, through his death and resurrection, are fully restored, fully healed, fully forgiven, fully loved. That Jesus Christ came for you. And as bearers of that good news, what happens next? How does the story end? 
prayer is this, that it ends in joy, that it ends in praise, that you walk out of here knowing that the creator of the universe gave up everything for you because he wanted to, because he thought you were worth it. And he sends you out to be his people, but this time not trembling and afraid and silent, but joyful and sharing. Jesus Christ has done for you. The angel said, go his, to tell his disciples and Peter. Let's pray. Lord God, um, thank you. sermons have like three points uh, to, to know how to pray or five steps to be a, a better parent. And this is not one of those sermons. But Lord, um, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Lord, we pray that we might remember your sacrifice and your resurrection every day. So that, Lord, we may not live in the past with its fear. So that, Lord, we may not live in the future with its insecurity. But rather, Lord, we might live today knowing that you live and that you reign and that we are loved and that we are yours. And, Lord, so many times we live out of fear, of self-interest. or anger or asserting our rights Lord God you gave up everything for us thank you this Thanksgiving week we're going to give you thanks for a lot of stuff for shelter and transportation and job Thanks for one more thing. 